0: I had a, a rare treat this evening. There's a little enclave just in that corner of Australian accents. And uh, without even knowing, I buried myself in the midst of it. I think it's just a natural sort of pull in that direction. So uh, if if you're like I imagine most people from the UK who just love the Australian accent, it's like poetry, uh, then that's the place to head uh, after the service if you want a bit more. Now, uh, I, I love my father. Uh, he has steered me straight Many a time uh, he has guided me very well through my life in virtually every area except for one, very badly. That is the whole area of football, uh, Australian rules football to be precise, which is our, or at least the number one sport in the part of Australia uh, where my ancestors are from, Melbourne. It is a sport followed more passionately than any sport I have ever come across. Uh, it's called Australian Rules, but there really are no rules whatsoever. Uh, it's just an organised fight uh, for four quarters. You can't be sent off at all at any point for doing anything uh, that I've seen. Now, uh, the, problem, the problem for me is that my father uh, and his father before him follow a team called, uh, they were called the Footscray Bulldogs and now called the Western Bulldogs. They're trying to embrace more of Melbourne, Melbourne. Uh, because uh, they've had to embrace more of Melbourne because they are such a dud team that nobody, virtually no-one, follows them. Uh, they have won one premiership flag, and that was in 1956. I wasn't around to see it. Uh, and uh, they haven't looked like winning one since. In fact, overnight, they, they were beaten by a side who'd uh, scored double the amount of points they did. Now, in soccer, in football, over here, that kind of works. 2-1. That's not a huge defeat. But in Aussie rules, you usually score at least 100 120 points a game. And so when you get beaten by double, it's a good sign that that you're in big, big trouble as a team. And that's where my team is. But even, even with a team as bad as Footscray, the people who follow them, like any team in Aussie rules, and I imagine it's a bit like Premier League football over here, they are passionate about their team, completely blind, completely focused on their love for their team. And the more passionate supporter you get, you see them around finals time when their team uh, loses and gets knocked out for yet another year. There's tears, there's heartache, uh, there's weeks of uh, consolation trying to get over yet another defeat. And I remember many, many, uh, many a year around September, which is when the finals are walking out the front door yet again of our house uh, in Sydney and Dad saying, maybe next year. And this had happened year after year. But even without that, the supporters are passionate and it's weird, isn't it? Because with something like football, Aussie rules or, or soccer over here, it's, it's uh, the supporters, you have this group of people all supporting one team who have almost nothing in common with each other and yet they are united by their love of people kicking around a piece of leather. They're just passionate, passionately in love with this team. And I reckon you'd be hard pressed to find a passion stronger than a love of a football team. Except perhaps for one thing. And that is in, uh, in Aussie rules, you usually have a person who follows one team passionately and then they have one other passion that is just as strong and that is a hatred of one other team in the competition. There's a team called Collingwood who everybody hates, I'm not sure why, uh, whether it's because they're a team that seem to have lots of money but don't, still don't manage to win or wh- whatever it is, whether they've got lousy fans And uh, people hate them for that. But usually the the, the catch cry is, I follow Footscray and anybody playing Collingwood is who I support. And I reckon if if you think about that, it actually says something about human nature. If you'd ask someone, what is it that unites people? What is the glue that would bond a group of people together? Most people say, well, of love. Love would be what would unite people. But I think just as strong a force is hatred of a common enemy whether it be something as silly as football or something as important as the passage we have in front of us tonight. Have a look at Mark 12, verses 13 onwards. I think what we'll see is just as strong a glue as love is when it comes to unity, hatred is up there. Hatred can bind a group of people together who seemingly are coming from totally different perspectives, who have nothing in common As we continue uh, this series in Mark's Gospel, as we see people ask Jesus questions, we come across a very unlikely partnership. In verse 13 of Mark 12, we have the Herodians and the Pharisees completely united. Now, you wouldn't find two more opposite groups than the Herodians and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are all nationalistic. They're pro-Israel. Anything to do with Israel, anything to do with Israel's recovery, as a nation, they're in on. And then you've got the Herodians who are pro Rome, who are quite happy with the setup as it is in Jesus' time. You've got the Herodians who are in cahoots with Rome. Anything that Rome does, they're happy with. And then when it comes to the, the way they approach their religion, you've got the Pharisees who are narrow and legalistic. And then you've got the Herodians who are ultra liberal, anything goes. Happy to sort of blend in Roman cults and different things like that into their religion as long as it gets them a bit further politically. The Pharisees happy to resist anything from Rome. The Herodians very happy to to accommodate Rome. And so if you look at these two groups, you, you, you wonder what could possibly unite two groups like this. Well, it's Jesus. He unites them. But not a love of Jesus. Have a look. It is a seething, consuming hatred of Jesus That unites them. The Pharisees with their religious agenda and the Herodians with their political aspirations both see Jesus as a threat. He comes to them and he looks like he's going to ruin their hard-won setup and they won't have it. They're desperate to remove this threat. They want him dead. And it's not a knee-jerk reaction. Really, all the way through Mark's Gospel, we've seen this plot brewing away, their hatred getting stronger and stronger if you flick back all the way to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, you'll see where the plot started. These two unlikely groups that have nothing to do with each other united in their desire to see Jesus killed. And so they've plotted. They've thought of the way that they can do him in. But they know Jesus is no easy beat. He's a tough opponent. They've fought him over the Sabbath, over Satan, over holiness, over the temple and even most recently in the last couple of weeks we've seen them fight him over his authority and his identity and every time they've come up against him, Jesus has won. And so we're told at various points in Mark's Gospel that they were taking their time, scheming, plotting, cooking up the perfect trap for Jesus. And you can picture the scene, can't you? The, sort of the late night meetings as they rehearse plot after plot, looking for the perfect way to trap him. Until at last one of them comes up with it. A wonderful, perfect trap. So simple and yet guaranteed to work. They'll ask him a question. They've asked him plenty of questions, but this one will be different. It will be a question with only two possible answers yes or no. A dilemma. You see it there in verse 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And so we ask you, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay Or shouldn't we? You have a look at those verses and you see in verse 14 this sort of sugar-coated flattery that they begin their question with. It's sort of like the Dale Carnegie School of How to Win Friends and Influence People. Start with sort of warm, fuzzy compliments before you get to the tricky stuff. You know, their aim was to sort of disarm Jesus so he'd be so busy basking in the warmth of their kind words that he'd walk straight into their trap. But of course their flattery is deeply ironic, isn't it? Have a look at verse 14 again. The very things that they praise Jesus for, his integrity, the fact that he is not swayed by men, the fact that he teaches the truth, are the polar opposite characteristics to this group plotting to kill Jesus. They have no integrity They are a group very much swayed by men. Just one or two verses back, verse 12, we're told they were more afraid of the crowd and the opinion of the crowd than they were of Jesus. And they are a group that have long since left God's ways behind. And yet there's further irony, isn't there? Because this false flattery that they pour out on Jesus is very true. For once they have assessed him well, but not enough to realise that this flattery Will have no effect on Jesus because he is not swayed by men, because he does not pay any attention to who they are or what status they have, and because he will speak in accordance with the truth. But not only is Jesus not moved by their flattery, he is completely aware of what they are trying to do. He smells hypocrisy a mile away. It's the smell of religion, the smell of politics. And yet knowing this, do you see what he does? He walks straight into the trap, eyes wide open. He will answer them and he will answer according to the truth. And so they put their question to him. They're confident that they've got him at last. If he refuses to answer, he's a goner. If he says yes, the people will reject him. The crowds that have started to support him and think that he's the one who will raise Israel back up but if he says no, then the Romans will see him as a rebel, a revolutionary. And while they tolerate any religious nut coming along with his latest theory, they will not tolerate political diversity. They meet such pretenses of power with absolute and complete steel. And so it's a beautiful trap, isn't it? You can imagine them basking in this moment. This is the moment they've been waiting for. Yes or no, he's done. But Jesus stands before them, calm, aware of their plots, aware of their hate-curdled hearts, and he's frustrated. Do you see it there? He's frustrated that they continue to try and trap him. He is God's son. He has come to give his life as a ransom for many. He has come to rescue them, and they miss it. Why are you trying to trap me, he says, but he responds to their question anyway. He says, bring me a denarii, denarius. Let me look at it. And they fish out this coin and they bring it to him. You know, a denarius is a silver coin, no bigger than a 10p coin. Pretty nondescript. And yet on one side it had an image of Caesar with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. And on the other side, speaking of Caesar, it says, high priest. It was a coin that pronounced that Augustus Caesar was a god and his son, Tiberius, was divine as well. It was also the coin that was the amount due by the Jewish people as a poll tax to the Romans. It was a hated tax, not only because they didn't feel they owed Rome anything but because it had Caesar's image on it who pretended that he was God. And so Jesus flips this coin in his hand. They've got him. And then he breaks the silence with the question, whose portrait is on this coin and whose inscription, he says. Last week we saw Jesus the master teacher. This week we see Jesus the master lawyer. What a question. Here he is in, in the interrogation box, no way out. Yes or no, he's done. And all of a sudden he has jumped out of that box and he has thrown them into it. Whose picture's on the coin? Whose inscription? They spit out Caesar's name. This is not the way they were hoping this conversation was going to go. And so Jesus continues. He says, okay, well if it's got Caesar's picture on the coin. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. I love it brilliant courtroom manoeuvring. There were only two possible answers and yet Jesus shows them an altogether different one. The question Jesus asked of them, of course, only has one answer. Whose picture is on it? It's Caesar's. And the law of the day stated that whoever's, whatever sovereign's picture was on there, whoever's name was inscribed on the coin, that's who it belonged to. No questions asked, regardless of who had the coin in their possession. It was Caesar's. And so Jesus says, well then give it to Caesar and give to God what is God's. It's only a short passage, only five verses. And yet in this last verse, verse 17, I think we have one of the most significant and influential statements that has ever been uttered. The first time I read this sentence, I I thought to myself, Jesus would have made a, a great politician. He's been asked a simple answer, yes or no, And he's given an answer that seems to avoid the question altogether. But the more you look at it, the more you think about the implications of what Jesus is saying here, the more you realise what an amazing answer it really is. In fact, I want to put it to you tonight that you will not find a more significant political, theological and anthropological statement than this one verse. Because I think this sentence shapes the whole way we view both human authority and human nature. And so it's worth spending a little bit of time unpacking that together. What is Jesus getting at in verse 17? Now really I want to do that in the two parts of his response. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. So what does it mean to give to Caesar what is Caesar's? Well think about the context that Jesus is operating in. Think about the the might of the Roman Empire. The very first thing I think he is saying in saying this coin belongs to Caesar, is he's saying that human authority, the state, the government, whatever form it takes, is valid. Jesus is saying that's true even when the government, the state, has too high a view of itself. I mean, you can't have too too much of a higher view than you think you're God. That's where Caesar's at. And yet Jesus says this is a valid authority. He does the same thing before Pilate in a few uh, a little bit later in John nineteen verse eleven he expressly affirms Pilate's authority over him an authority that he has been given. And I guess for us as Christians that's the key to understanding Jesus' words in verse seventeen government, whatever form it takes, civil authority is valid, because all government has been established by God. It is derived authority. It's worth uh, turning to Romans 13, page 1140 of the Bibles. Romans 13, verse 1, and you see Paul explicitly explain this. Romans 13, verse 1, Paul says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God himself has established. Do you believe that? Whatever government, whatever authority exists in this world has been put there by God. It is by his will, none of it is out of his control. And so I think for a Christian it means being anti-government, anti-authority is not an option. The government is a valid authority. And as the Bible makes clear, with with, uh, someone like Pilate's handling of Jesus The government or the state may at points will evil, may do things that we think are totally wrong and yet is always constrained by God to his good ends. Do you believe that? The Christian knows the state cannot help but render the service God has in mind for it. Do you believe that? God's will prevails always. So there's the first implication of what Jesus is saying. The government is valid. The second is that government is always purposeful. Once you start to explore what the Bible says about human authority, it becomes clear that the creation of such authority is purposeful. To think that it is possible to have no government in this world, that we as humans can operate without it, is to have far too high a view of authority, of humanity. The government exists to do the things that God has set it to do, to provide and distribute resources, to curb sin. That's what the Bible says. Human history as it's recorded in the Bible and in our own experiences proves that we can't do that without such authority. In fact if you look, uh, continue to look at the, the passage in Romans 13 you'll see that the whole point of God creating things like authority, things like government, is for our good. It is part of his common grace. Romans 13 verse 4 speaking of the ruler it says for he is God's servant to do you good. And as 1 Timothy 2 says they exist so that we as Christians may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Government is valid. Government is purposeful. And this is the big one I think. Government has a valid claim on our behaviour. Not only has he established the government, he has established it for his purposes and he expects us to submit to it. Did you see that in Romans 13 verse 1? Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. And then again in 1 Peter 2, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. We are to submit because God has placed them in this position. We are to submit because as Romans 13 verse 4 says, otherwise we will be punished justifiably. And we are to submit as 1 Peter 2 says, so that we can honour God and silence the foolish talk about Christians in the community. Now of course there's going to be limits to our submission isn't there as Christians? Is there a point where we want to say as Christians, no I will not submit now? Well let me say I can think of three possible cases where that would be the, the situation. The first is I think the Bible says that it is never right to submit to a law that violates a command of God. You Have a look at Acts 4 and 5 and you see Peter and John dragged before the authorities for doing what? For preaching the gospel. And they are commanded by the authorities not to speak about Jesus or in his name ever again. And what do they do? They march straight back out and continue to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. They drag back again and by Acts 5.29, Peter says, when they ask him why he continues to do it, we must obey God rather than men. It's never right to submit to a law that would violate a command of God. And so we, I think, in this country need to be very thankful for the freedom that we have to preach Christ without censoring. But also to be aware that it may not always be the case and to be honest about that and to see that already in some areas that that is starting to be curtailed and to be prepared to be where Peter and John were in Acts 4 and 5 to say we must obey God and not men. Though it's never right to submit to the law that violates the command of God. It's never right, I don't think, according to the Bible to submit to a law or the removal of a law which promotes immorality. It's never right to submit to a law which would have you sinning against your conscience. And I think on both of these that we need to be very careful as Christians. It's easy to say that uh, my Christian conscience tells me not to obey this law, but I think it's up to us to have an informed Christian conscience an informed Christian morality to work hard at that so that when we're making decisions about what to obey and what not to, that we've thought it through. But in the end, I think it comes down to this. Submission to authorities can never mean approval of the suppression of the gospel. That's that's the simple answer of whether it's right or wrong to submit. There are times to disobey. They are rare and we need to be wise to know when they come. We need to train our moral compasses. We need to train our consciences. We need to know our Bibles well enough to know when a law violates, something God is asking us to do. But having said all this, let me say that the default mode for a Christian under a government is to submit. It means that we obey the government. As it says in Romans 13 to pay taxes, to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It means that we have to respect the government. Now that's a hard one isn't it? I'm not sure if you've thought about that. I guess the The default position in most Western cultures, at least in Australia this is the case, whenever the Australian Prime Minister walks onto a sporting field uh, to sort of begin the event, he gets booed by the entire crowd. That's our way of showing respect for our Prime Minister. I'm not sure if that happens here but my impression in the time that I've been here is again there's a general disrespect for the government. I think a Christian is called not to do that. We are respecting an office rather than just the person who's in it at that time. Respecting the government means that we expect the best of them and that we are prepared to endure injustice when that doesn't happen. Well, how about this one? I think submitting to the government means that we need to be involved in the government. Now, again, I come from a country where voting is compulsory. Uh, I haven't had to make the decision whether I should vote or not, but uh, in this country it is voluntary. And when I was looking at the statistics last elections, only 60% of the country voted. And when you include people who weren't even registered who could have voted, it's as low as 44%. And when you look at people between 18 and 35, it's as low as 30%. Now, I'm not sure where Christians are in that, whether you're a voter or not, but I, I want to put it to you that voting as a Christian is compulsory, completely compulsory. Informed voting is compulsory. You need to think hard about where the government is at. Think hard about the opposition. Think hard about their policies. Let me say, I think a Christian doesn't have a default voting pattern either. Christians don't vote conservative. Christians don't vote Labor or Liberal Democrats. They vote Christianly. They think hard about policies They think hard about what the government is saying and the opposition is saying and then they vote. To be Christian is to be involved in the government. And finally, when we're talking about giving to Caesar, what is Caesar's? The absolute best thing that you can give to Caesar, give to the government, is your prayers. 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority the absolute best way you can promote the best from our government is to pray for them continually, regularly. And if you don't know what to pray, let me encourage you uh, to find an old Anglican prayer book. Uh, There's some great prayers uh, there that you can pray for the government if you're not sure what to pray. But that is our job. Our job is to be involved. Our job is to pray for them, to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But finally let's turn to the second part of Jesus' statement in verse 17 and I think this is where the real sting in the tail is give to God what is God's. This is where you see just how amazing what Jesus is saying is because it's not just political clever speak where he's avoiding the question but you see what he's saying, he's holding this coin in his hand which has Caesar on it who's claiming to be God and he says give to God what is God's. There is only one God and Caesar is not the man. Caesar's inscripted claim is false and deluded. In fact, the only authority that Caesar has is one that Jesus has given him. There is no loyalty or duty due to him other than what God has given. And here is the most amazing thing. If you look at Jesus' response closely, he's saying something very important about who you and I are. He picks up this coin and he flicks it in his hand. Seeing the image of Caesar, he asks, whose image is on the coin? But then in the same way, he picks you up and he turns you over and he says, whose image is on you? Whose image is on you? Caesar can have his denarius. He's welcome to it. But as for you and your life, that's mine, says God. This is super important, I think, for us to get our head around. For to my mind, these last few words from Jesus' lips capture the Bible's teaching on our very nature as humans, as to who we are. The other reading we had tonight from Genesis 1 talks about the very foundation of the world when we were created. It talks about our wonderful God who is Trinity, one God, three persons, a God who is in relationship with himself, And we are told that we have been created in his image. You were created like God himself, a personal and relational creature, meant for relationship with him, meant for relationship with each other. But you don't need to go far in the Bible to see how that image that was stamped on us right at the beginning in creation has been marred terribly. I'm not sure if uh, tourist places in uh, the UK have this, but in Australia, in places like Sydney, you, you can get these coin stamping machines that take a, a perfectly good coin and stamp a, a sort of a, a picture of the harbour bridge on it or something and it stretches it out and you can sort of take it home as a memento. But to be honest, it's completely useless. You had a perfectly good $1 coin and now it's this thing with a harbour bridge on it that you'll keep for about, I don't know, a day or two and then you'll wonder where it's gone and it's gone forever. That's what's happened to us when it comes to the image God put on us at creation. We've traded it in for a tacky tourist coin. Romans 1.22 says this of us. Although we claim to be wise, we became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. We've traded in our image, God's image for our own human image. And looking at this marred, disfigured image, it's difficult to see how it could ever be made new again. And yet that is the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. One of my favourite passages in the whole Bible, in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, in verse 15, it's speaking of Jesus that says, He is the image of the invisible God, What God is really like we see in Jesus and even more than that we see what we are meant to be like. And when it comes to government, when it comes to authority we're told in Colossians that he alone has supreme authority and he has used that authority to win us back. Through his death we have been made new recreated in the very image of God, the image of the Son. If you have come to trust in Jesus, do you know what God has done? He has stamped his image all over you again, sealed you with his spirit, saying, you are mine. And if you are his, God says, give to God what is God's. Do you see the implications of what Jesus is saying in verse 17? He's not claiming a coin. Who cares about a coin? He's claiming the whole universe and in particular he's claiming us. And so it means that absolutely everything in our lives, our thoughts, our actions, our decisions, our relationships, everything down to the last lash of our eye has been stamped by his redeeming sovereign rule. It means that there's no aspect of our lives that God is indifferent towards. Do you believe that? Every aspect of who you are and what you do Has been stamped with his image. He claims the lot and he expects us to glorify him with the lot. And so, the question I leave you with tonight is how does this reality permeate our lives? How does this idea that God has claimed our total lives permeate it so that no detail of our lives remains untouched by his image? God has created you in his image. We've done our best to destroy it forever and yet he has made it new again in Jesus. He wants us to glorify him with every part of it. That is our challenge and our joy. It's a lifetime's enterprise. As Colossians 3 puts it, you have now taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on your new self which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. This is God's world. Our lives are God's. He has brought you back at a price. We are to reclaim absolutely every aspect of our lives, lives he created to be very good and honour him with them. Give to God.